three girls are the youngest. So boys so first, boys first eight-year-old, and, and then six, six three, three girls, eight months. Yeah. Wow. So Noah, Annabelle, Ruby, Katie. Oh, nice. Yeah. Awesome. Four kids. Wow. I said to my wife the other night, two is... We're finished. So, you keep going. You you don't just laugh at dad jokes, you make dad jokes. You make dad jokes. Oh, cool. There's something to look forward to. Awesome. Well, maybe you could make some dad jokes (laughs) during your sermon. I subscribe to dad jokes on Twitter. Oh, really? You're on Twitter. There's a a dad jokes. You can follow them. There's the whole underground community of dad jokes. It's just a constant stream of dad jokes. Wow. I'm going to get on this. We'll chat later. <laughs> and uh, where, whereabouts are you ministering at the moment? So uh, I'm at Redemption Church, which is a church plant in Ringwood. Uh, I've been there for six months, seven months, so not that long. Yeah, yeah, yep. and loving it. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So Redemption, yeah, Redemption Church is a, a brand new church plant. Two years yep. it's been going. Yeah, in Ringwood, doing some great stuff, and uh, is really renowned for its teaching in the the. the um, teaching that goes on at the church, and Nathan's one of the teachers at the church there. Would that be correct? Teachers, oh, one off, speakers, I, I, one off. Yeah, yeah, one off. Yeah, yeah. And I actually saw. I don't know. I think on YouTube or somewhere, there's a clip of Nathan reciting the entire book of Philippians. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I watched it the other day. It is incredible. The entire book of Philippians. Nathan just stands up there and delivers it beautifully. And it's it's actually quite a profound experience listening to the word in that way. Uh, just listening to someone, it's, it's like you're in amongst it and you're there within it. And it's not only an incredible uh, gift to be able to do that, but yeah, it's quite a blessing to be able to do it. So look it up. Maybe you can chat to Nathan afterwards about where you would find it. I don't know. He doesn't know either. Well, <laughs> so, it's, on, it's on the internet somewhere. <laughs> if you either look that up or the, fa- the father jokes, but either way. Then, yeah, 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 one of the two. Nice. Um, what uh, what footy team do you back for? Do you follow the football? I do. I, I barrack for Carlton. Carlton. Oh, yeah. it's, oh, but I'm not really. You did a good job the other night. They were all right. Yeah, they were yeah. All right. Yeah, they were. They were yeah. all right. Yeah. Um, I'm not like a mad Carlton supporter though. Okay. I'm more a it sounds cliche, but I'm more a, just a general fan of footy. Okay. Yeah. yeah nice. Yeah, yeah. So. Is there an other, another sport that you are more interested in, or is is AFL your uh, spectator wise? Probably not. I'm, prob- I'm pretty seasonal. Like I like watching the cricket, footy, but playing, like competing, I like, um, I like playing golf. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It's probably the main hit of tennis every now and then with some friends. Yeah, yeah nice. that's about it. Yeah, cool. yeah. Uh, Carlton. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all right. <laughs> Are there any other Carlton supporters? Oh, there's two. There you go. Excellent. There you go. <laughs> go Carlton. Yeah. Um, nice. Last question. What were you doing before you came to Redemption Church? Uh, so I was pastoring in another church in the city. I was at a church called Cross Culture in the city. I was there for six years. Yeah. Abram. Abram. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like we're just having a chat and everyone else is like, no, this is like going past everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> it's a small Christian yeah. world. That's right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And so. in, a, in uh, three words, you can use a couple more if you would like to. Can okay. you give us just a, a really brief summary of what you're going to be speaking of tonight? Uh, implications of Jesus not being raised bodily from the dead. That was Ooh. under 10, but more than Hello. three. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Very good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Looking right. forward to hearing you share a bit later. Cool. Thanks. Nice. Well, I'm just going to invite the uh, worship team up now. Oh, sorry. No, we have a video.
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for remember, reminding me. We have a video now, and then we're going to um, have a bit of, bit of time of worship. So Beautiful. Uh, I'm just going to welcome up uh, one of our youth workers at Warrandite, uh, Georgie. Give her a clap. Uh, and Georgie's just going to share with us a few reflections that she has on the power and the importance of the resurrection in her life. Um, and then uh, share a little bit about um, a mission opportunity that she's involved with. Um, nice. Here you go, George. Hi, I'm Georgie, like Andy said. Um, so yes, I've been thinking about the question, what does the resurrection mean to me? Um, and it's a good question, one that I hadn't really thought about before, which is a bit silly, but... Um, there's a lot of reasons why the resurrection is really important, but I've settled on two. Um, the first one is the resurrection is important because it like solidifies that Jesus is who he says he is, the son of God, because throughout the whole Bible, but in the Old Testament, there is heaps of prophecies saying that the son of God will be raised to life. For example, in Job, this is my paraphrase, says, I know that my redeemer lives. And then in Isaiah, it says, he will swallow up death forever. So I just think it's really cool that Jesus actually fulfilled all of those things. He is who he says he is. It's cool. And the second one is um, the resurrection is cool because it means that Jesus is actually alive, which I know is pretty self-explanatory. But when you think about it, it's really cool. Like he's not buried in the ground somewhere. He's not dead and unreachable. He's alive and we get to know him and we get to communicate with him and be loved by him and love him. And I think that's awesome and it's great news, which brings me to my mission opportunity. So I, <laughs> I am involved in a summer and winter mission. It's called Blue Moose, which is a very silly name, but it's a great time. Um, and so the particular one that I'm going to be talking about today is going to happen in the winter school holidays which is not these ones, obviously, the next ones. And there'll be two locations. The location I'm going to is called St. Arnold. It's a very small and boring country town. We're going to go up and we're going to hang out with the young people there because there's absolutely nothing to do. There's a swimming pool, which is great in winter, but totally useless in the... I mean, hang on. It's great in summer. <laughs> but it's totally useless in the winter. So we're going to go up and hang out with the teenagers of the town. And I just thought I would share a short story of like why I love the town so much and why I want to keep going there. Um, this summer we went up, we had a great time, we hung out with the local kitties and God gave me a particular broken heart for these three little boys, uh, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old, which are usually younger than we would allow, but they're cute and naughty, so they work their way in. Um, and one of the boys in particular is named Lockie he is the blondest, most long-eyelashed little guy. He's 12. Um, he comes from a, quite a disadvantaged family. He has an awfully foul mouth, but he is also incredibly loyal to his little brothers and his old ones, but they need him less. Um, he has a killer giggle, and he I just love him. Anyway, so one night we were wrapping up, and I just, on a whim, I just wrapped my arms around him. I said, Lockie, I love you. And he looked up at me and he goes, what the heck? Are you drunk? <laughs> Which is hilarious and not the response I was hoping for. <laughs> but also it makes me sad because um, here is a wonderful little guy 
and he doesn't know a lot of love and there's heaps of love offered to him from Jesus and he just doesn't know it. So that's why I'm going to keep going back until they know about him. So yeah, um, it's for, sorry, I totally left out all of the valuable information. It's happening in the winter school holidays. I think I said that. It's for people who are aged from year nine upwards and beyond. Um, if you'd like to pray for us, that'd be great. If you'd like to help us financially, that would be great. If you don't want to, that's also fine. If you'd like to come, I would love that. Um, I have little cards with information. If you want one, come talk to me. And I'm done. So thank you very much. (laughs) Beautifully done, George. It's lovely. Um, Yeah, really great opportunity to uh, live out our faith and go and, and, and to minister some some people who uh, maybe have never heard about Jesus or don't really have the resources or the connections that we city folk do. Uh, I've been on one years ago for four or five years, went up to a little country town called Barham. And just the relationships that were built over that time, there's still two or three people that I'm in constant connection with um, from those times. And just it's just an incredible opportunity to be able to connect with people uh, and to share Jesus. So make sure you see George if you want to, be part of that uh, or need more information. And they all, they're they always looking for cooks too, aren't they, these teams? Always looking for cooks. So if you're, if you're not too keen on connecting with young people, if that's not your thing, but you're an awesome cook, then, oh, there's plenty of opportunity for you too. So, awesome. I'm just going to invite Nathan uh, back up again. Um, and as he's coming up, uh, I'm just going to pray for him and the word that he's going to share. Let's pray. Jesus, we just uh, we don't just we thank you for your word. We thank you for your uh, love letter to us, and we thank you um, that you've gifted uh, certain individuals, Lord, with um, the ability to be able to uh, understand it and and bring together and piece together um, uh, a really powerful presentation. Lord, we just pray for Nathan tonight, and uh, beyond, Lord, the words that he says, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be moving and. Um, penetrating to our hearts and our minds and speaking in a language that each of us understands the word the encouragement the challenge uh, that you want to give to uh, each of us tonight jesus i uh, just really pray that you bless this time now and uh holy spirit just have your way in nathan and through nathan and in us in jesus name we pray amen um if you have your bibles there uh please open them up to 1 corinthians chapter 15 just going to get rid of some stuff here. I hope that's okay. Is this yours, Trevor? Sorry. Can I? Great. Cheers. So please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to look at verses 12 uh, to 20. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 12, this is God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me pray for us just one more time. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for those words, but in fact, we thank you that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have also died. We thank you, uh, God, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We pray that you might grip our hearts afresh with the reality of the resurrection this evening, that you might strengthen our confidence, our faith in the risen Lord Jesus, and then that might demonstrate itself in a renewed resolve to follow and serve him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in his New York Times bestseller, Reason for God, uh, Tim Keller quotes the Russian novelist and philosopher, Leo Tolstoy, who once wrote, My question That which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. Now, the sceptic or atheist, the person who doesn't believe that God exists, or even the agnostic, someone who's really not sure that God exists, might answer Tolstoy's question by appealing to the fact that despite the inevitability of death, they still care deeply about things in this world, things like caring for the environment, improving the the plight of the poor and marginalised, fighting for justice, Uh, caring for loved ones, and they find real meaning, real significance in these things. Just a a few weeks ago, I was uh, at a family party and and speaking with a family member, and she was talking about how, uh, she's not a Christian, she was talking about how uh, growing up she had a kind of general belief in God's existence, but then shifted from that to now thinking that God probably doesn't exist, though recently she's she's begun to question that again, but, but she said that really through it all, the things that she's got meaning and significance from haven't actually really changed. In her case, they've been things like working for charity, caring for a family. Now that her family's older, she hopes to work with women who are underprivileged and at risk. And of course, we Christians would agree that those things are important. In fact, history is, is littered with examples of Christians championing the cause of the poor and, and marginalised, fighting for things like health and education, just Just think of this city, think of the hospitals and schools in this city that in some sense have roots, historical roots, in a Christian church or organisation. But here's the thing. If you believe that the world was caused by a cosmic accident and that in the end, nothing we do lasts, that everything will simply be destroyed, then that worldview actually undermines, it undermines any motivation to make any real difference in this world. Of course you can do it. I'm not for a second uh, undermining or suggesting the fact that, or suggesting that that's not the way many sceptics, atheists live. I have many friends like that. 
It's just hard to make sense of it. It's hard to make sense of why you should do it. I mean, if we really are just a, a pebble dropped in an ocean of time and space of no more value or significance than a piece of seaweed or a grain of sand or a, a piece of bark or block of blue cheese, you know, he, he one minute, gone the next. Then as Tim Keller notes, why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end, nothing we do will make any difference? Of course, if you drop a pebble into a, an ocean, it creates ripples. But in time, the ripples disappear. The Christian responds to Tolstoy's question by appealing to Easter Sunday, to the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus indicates that this world is not pointless. That death is not the end. That the hope of a, a physical life after death in a redeemed world, is not simply a groundless crutch for us to lean on, but a historical reality that in some sense has already begun. Now, of course, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you may well pity us Christians for our gullibility, our weakness of mind, our belief in such superstitious nonsense like a dead man coming back to life again. I mean, it sounds right. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds more like fiction, fairy tale. In fact, interestingly, I wonder, you might have picked this up, you might have noticed in the reading from the Bible just a moment ago, you might have noticed that the Apostle Paul, who claimed to be an eyewitness of the risen Jesus, so he claimed to have seen Jesus alive physically after he died, he says that Christians shouldn't be pitied for our belief in the resurrection. Rather, we should be pitied if there is no resurrection. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is so central to Christianity that if you take it away, we end up back where Tolstoy was, asking the same questions. And in the end, Christianity itself, like everything else, becomes futile and useless. In fact, worse than that, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, what's happened is we've built our lives on it and believed in it. And what we've done is we've built our lives and believed in a lie. And so we should be, Paul says, pitied. Now, from a Christian point of view, given how central the resurrection is, I mean, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll notice just how prominent the resurrection is in the apostles' preaching. Given how central it is, it's surprising how far many of us have shifted the resurrection from the center of our lives and thinking. If you saw the little video I did, I'm kind of regurgitating that now. This sounds familiar. It's surprising how far we've shifted the resurrection away from the center of our lives and thinking. It's not, I don't think, that we don't believe it. It's just that as we get caught up in the busyness of life in this world, things like work, study, raising kids, everything else our busy life involves, we forget, or perhaps for some of us we've never really understood, why the resurrection is significant and how it should alter our priorities now, I mean, we get Good Friday. We get that the cross is the place where Jesus substitutes himself and dies in the place of sinners like us, dies to pay the penalty for the sins of all of those who would ever repent and believe. But the resurrection? I mean, if the, if the cross is like our hearts, then the resurrection has become a bit like our appendix. I mean, we know it's there, but most of us really don't know what it does. And it doesn't seem to matter very much if you remove it. 
Well, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's writing to a group of Christians who prided themselves on being very spiritual. The problem with the Corinthians was that their view of spirituality was in many ways false. They, They were more informed by the culture surrounding them than they were by the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. It'd kind of be like today, it'd be like today a Christian being more informed by the annual mind-body-soul festival that's held here in Melbourne than the Bible. And because what we believe manifests itself in actions, in how we live, their false view of spirituality manifested itself in all kinds of distortions. If you've ever read through 1 Corinthians, you'll know what I mean. Things like divisions over leadership, sexual immorality, taking out lawsuits against one another, the abuse of spiritual gifts, and the false idea we find here in chapter 15, namely, that the dead are not raised. And so Paul responds in verses 12 to 20, the verses I just read, by showing the Corinthians the inconsistency of their belief and the implications of their belief. The inconsistency of their belief and the implications of their belief. You see, for Paul a denial of the future bodily resurrection of believers would lead to a denial of the resurrection of Jesus and a denial of the gospel itself. So if you have your Bibles there, I encourage you to keep them open. Uh, We're just going to work our way through these verses together under those two simple points. Firstly, looking very briefly at the inconsistency of the Corinthians' belief, and then we'll look in more detail at the implications of their belief. So firstly, the inconsistency of the Corinthians' belief. Look there at verses 12 to 13 with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Or look down at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So you might notice that the the, the, the truth that sort of undergirds Paul's entire argument here is that there's a connection between the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection. So, so that to deny one would naturally lead to a denial of the other. Now, just to be clear, the, the Corinthians weren't outright denying the resurrection of Jesus. It, it's, it's possible that, that some of them may have misunderstood in part what Paul and the apostles meant by resurrection, but, but what they were primarily questioning was the necessity of their own future bodily resurrection. Now, why would they have been doing that? Well, in in Greco-Roman thought, the soul or spirit was believed to be good, while the material world, physical stuff like our flesh and bones, our bodies, was believed to be weak and corrupt. Now, one of the things that does, it does a few things, one of the things that does is it changes the way you think about salvation. You see, the hope of salvation becomes the hope of being freed from your weak, corrupt body. The hope of being freed from the material world into some higher spiritual state. So most of you be familiar with uh, Pythagoras from your high school maths class, probably, if you were paying attention. That's a while ago for me. But anyway, um, Pythagoras was a Greek philosopher and mathematician and astronomer. Well, the Pythagoreans, the school of thought that followed him, taught that the soul is released from the body at death, with with good souls flying to the upper realms. Another prominent Greek figure, Plutarch, taught that the soul attained to the realm of the gods. How? Well, by being freed from the body and so becoming pure and undefiled. So you see, the Corinthians, uh, influenced by this kind of thinking, weren't denying the existence of an afterlife. What they were denying 
was the necessity of their own future bodily resurrection. That's why Paul preempts later in the chapter, verse 35, he preempts, I think in some ways, the the Corinthians' philosophical objections to a physical bodily resurrection when he asks, but someone will say, or someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You see, for them to be saved was to be freed from their body. And Paul's saying that if Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, if I come along and I preach to you the gospel, and that gospel includes Christ being raised from the dead, you can't now do a 180 and start questioning the necessity of your own future bodily resurrection. It's logically inconsistent, he's saying. So look back at the start of the chapter. I'll show you what I mean. Look back at the start of the chapter. Notice how Paul begins. He says, Now I would remind you, you Corinthians, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And this gospel, this good news, that's just what the word gospel means, means good news. This good news is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, so in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he then appeared to all of these different people. And the Corinthians had come to believe this. So so look down at verse 11. Paul says, whether then is I or they, by which he means the other apostles. So we preach this gospel, this good news, and so you believed. Which is why he says, verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of dead? You see, you can't have one without the other. You see, the hope of salvation in the Bible is not to escape as spirits into some disembodied world. No, no, no. To be human is to be physical. To be saved is to be raised bodily from the dead. To be given a transformed and redeemed body to live in this world which will be transformed and renewed where there'll be no more sickness or suffering or death or sin. Where we'll get to enjoy fellowship with God, the source of life and love and all good things and one another forever. You see, our life in this world matters in part because it marks the start of a story that doesn't end at death, but will continue into a new age where there'll be continuity, sameness, and discontinuity, differentness. And the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, marks the beginning of that new age. Notice what Paul says down there in verse 20. He, Jesus, is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. To understand the Paul, the image rather Paul uses there of, of first fruits, you have to go back to the Old Testament, to places like Leviticus 23, where the first fruits of a harvest were brought to, were to be brought to God, and were indicative that there were many more to follow. The, the first fruits of a harvest were like a foretaste of the full harvest to come. So what Paul means is that the resurrection of Jesus is like God's pledge, His promise to those of us who have trusted in Christ that we too will be raised. His resurrection is the first fruits of countless resurrections to come. That's why Paul says that if Christ is raised, then we too will be raised. Or as the Corinthians said, put it negatively, if the dead are not raised, as the Corinthians believed, then that would mean that Christ isn't raised. And so what Paul does now is he really fleshes out the implications of the Corinthians' belief. So he doesn't believe this himself. He kind of puts himself in their shoes. He says, let's, let's just suppose for a moment that what you're saying is true. That would mean that, that Christ hasn't been raised. 
And here's some logical implications that flow from that. He gives us a number, but I want to highlight four. Firstly, he says that if Christ has not been raised, then both Christian preaching and the faith it produces are in vain. Verse 14, look there with me. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So just to be clear, kind of put this as starkly as I think the Apostle Paul intends it, what he's saying is that if Jesus wasn't raised bodily from the dead, then that would mean that what I'm doing right now is absolutely pointless. If Jesus wasn't raised bodily from the dead, it would mean that those of us who have believed in Jesus are wasting our time. That's what he's saying. The the word he uses there is kenos. It means empty, vain, void of truth. So he's saying that, that, that Christianity would be a sham or a delusion or a human construct, something that we've invented, we've made up based on a lie in order to make ourselves feel better, to give ourselves hope. So again, if you're a skeptic and you're not convinced that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead and you therefore think that Christianity is a load of baseless rubbish, you might be interested to know that Paul would say that if Jesus wasn't raised bodily from the dead, then I agree with you. You see, Paul's not a postmodern. By that I mean he's not the kind of guy who comes along and says, well, so long as it works for you, so, so long as it makes you happy, So long as you get some sort of therapeutic benefit from it, it doesn't really matter if Jesus' body lies smoldering in a grave somewhere in Palestine. He's saying the truth matters. He's not interested in redefining the resurrection in terms of the memory of Jesus living on in the lives of his followers. He's not interested in upholding Jesus as a good moral teacher or a positive example of love for us to follow. Like you hear so often on Q&A, if you ever watch that show, it's pretty frustrating. He's not interested in in looking at the resurrection as a symbol of hope that speaks to the triumph of the human spirit. He's saying that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then I should stop talking. We should all go home, finish off our, our chocolate eggs and Easter bunnies and hot cross buns, and just quit with this nonsense of, of gathering together of a Sunday to read the Bible and pray. We should, we should quit with this nonsense of trying to persuade others, our friends, our family, our neighbours, to believe in Jesus. It'd be a waste of time. Easter wouldn't have any significance beyond hot cross buns and a fairy tale about a fluffy bunny. Christian preaching and the faith it produces would be kenos, empty, vain, void of truth. Now, of course, Paul didn't believe that. He'd seen the risen Jesus. And so he went, remember, from being a persecutor of the church to a planter of churches. So I wonder how you explain that historically if if you're a skeptic. No one disputes that's what happened, that Saul of Tarsus went from being someone who hated Christians, persecuted the Christian church, to being a planter of churches. He claims to have seen the resurrected Jesus and so he spent his life serving him, which is why he finishes this chapter Verse 58, by saying, therefore, my beloved, that is in, in light of everything I've just said, in light of, in light of the resurrection of Jesus, in light of his, his victory over death, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in kenos, vain. 
Same word as he uses here. The second implication of denying the resurrection of Jesus is that Paul and the apostles, the eyewitnesses, were liars. Look there at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, says Paul, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. See, I want to impress upon us this evening that the claim of the earliest Christians was that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead in history, which means that there are historical evidences that demand an explanation. You see, I think in order to reject the resurrection of Jesus with any credibility, you have to come up with an alternative explanation as to what happened. See, Paul and the apostles claimed to be witnesses of a work of God in history, and they were either telling the truth or they were lying. Now, you might think that that's a bit extreme. Uh, they weren't lying. Perhaps, perhaps people back then were just more gullible. Perhaps they were just more inclined to believe odd myths and odd stories like, like resurrections. The problem with that is you just can't read the Gospels that way. So when Jesus was raised bodily from the dead and appeared to his disciples for the first time, one of the disciples, Thomas, wasn't there. When the other disciples speak to Thomas, tell him what had happened, he doesn't respond like a gullible man. He doesn't respond like a man who's just ready, eager to embrace the idea of a bodily resurrection. John's Gospel records it this way. He says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Now, just, just think for a moment. Think for a moment of the last funeral that you're at. Or just suppose someone close to you passes away and you go to their funeral this coming week. Just, just imagine how you would respond if somebody then came to you a few days later and said, you know, that, that person we buried a few, a few days ago, they're now alive, their tomb is empty. H- how would you respond? Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He wasn't gullible. He was as sceptical, I think, as as I would be if you came along and told me that that somebody had had been raised from the dead. And it's not just Thomas. Listen to how the other disciples first responded when when the women reported to them that the tomb was empty. Luke's Gospel records it this way, Luke 24, 11. These words seem to to them, the the disciples, an idle tale. The the word is lairos. It means pure nonsense. That would be literally how you would would translate it. These words seem to them pure nonsense. And they did not believe. You see, it's historically inaccurate to think that people back then just believed in resurrections. The Greeks didn't believe in bodily resurrection at all. Some of the Jews did, but they believed in a general resurrection at the end of history. They had no concept of an individual rising from the dead before then in the middle of history. See, they responded in, 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 with, with scepticism precisely because of that reason, that they weren't gullible. They were as sceptical as you and I would be if somebody came to us and said, you know, Joe Blow, from like, well, he's been raised from the dead. What's more, if, if the account of the resurrection was made up, why on earth would the, would the gospel writers have women arrive first at the, ch- at the tomb? Like it or not, in ancient societies, women were marginalised. They had little to no social standing. Now, here's why that's significant. Their evidence was not accepted as... Their their testimony, rather, wasn't accepted as evidence in court. They were dismissed. They weren't viewed as reliable witnesses, as credible witnesses. And yet all of the Gospels have women arrive first at the tomb. All of the Gospels have women as the first 
to bear witness. Now, perhaps you think that, well, maybe what happened was they were just, the disciples were just hallucinating. They were on whatever the first century version of, of magic mushies is, I guess, whatever they were on. You know, but the, the, the gospel writers are very clear. The tomb was empty. And, and if it wasn't empty, or if somebody simply stole the body, then as this new movement gained traction, then a, then a skeptic or somebody who didn't like the new movement could simply produce the body in order to shut the disciples up. What's more, I think even more significant, is that the disciples claim to have seen Jesus. And not just seen him, but, but touched him and eaten with him. And it wasn't just, just them. Paul lists groups of people. So look back up in, in verses 5 to 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, He, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying, you can go and speak to these guys. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared also to me. You see, there has to be some explanation for how the disciples went from being cowards who abandoned Jesus at the time of his crucifixion to transformed leaders who would testify, and many of them would, would die, for testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, what turned James, the brother of Jesus, what turned James from a, from a skeptic? It seems he didn't believe that Jesus was, was the Messiah uh, during his earthly ministry. What turned James from a skeptic to a leader in the Jerusalem church who would ultimately be martyred, who would die for his faith in his brother? More than that, there were several so-called messiahs in the century surrounding Jesus. That is, there were numerous people who claimed to be the promised Jewish messiah or, or king. But in nearly every case, the leader was killed, usually by execution, and the movement would simply die out. The disciples would go home or they'd, they'd find another messiah to follow. As far as we know, no other group in history went around claiming that their leader had, raised from, had been raised from the dead. And then, of course, there's, there's the ministry of Jesus. His, his miracles, his unique claims to be one with God, his teaching with authority. And then there's a point that Paul makes here. You see, one of the differences between Paul and us, or between the original disciples and us, is that we could believe in the resurrection of Jesus and be sincerely mistaken. We could be deceived. You see, we rely on the eyewitness testimony of others. That's just not true of the original eyewitnesses. In other words, they would have had to have invented the resurrection of Jesus, lie and persuade others, then all suffer for the lie, and then some of them even die for the lie. What's more, Paul and the original disciples were Jews. They, they feared God. And the Jewish law forbids giving false testimony. Now, this might not land on everyone the same way, but but as someone who's persuaded that, that God exists, now I could be mistaken, granted, but as someone who, who's persuaded that God exists, I just find it very difficult to believe that a Jew like Paul, someone who feared God, I, I find it difficult to believe in now that someone who fears God would knowingly give false testimony about God. That's why I think Sir Norman Anderson, who lectured at Cambridge and was head of Oriental Law at London University, was right to start his book, his little book on the evidences for the resurrection like this. He said, Easter is not primarily a comfort, but a challenge. Its message is either the supreme fact in history or else a gigantic hoax. We ourselves find it difficult to see the issue so clear-cut, for ours is a tolerant age and one suspicious of all fanaticism. Most people have not the slightest desire to attack the Easter message, and yet they only half believe it. 
To them it is a beautiful story, full of spiritual meaning. Why worry then whether it is literal fact? But, he says, we miss the point. Either it is infinitely more than a beautiful story, or else it is infinitely less. If it is true, then it is the supreme fact of history. To fail to adjust one's life to its implications means irreparable loss. But if it is not true, if Christ be not risen, then the whole of Christianity is a fraud, foisted on the world by a company of consummate liars or at best deluded simpletons. St. Paul himself realized this when he wrote, if Christ be not risen, we ourselves are found to be false witnesses. Thirdly, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then we're still in our sins. Look with me at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I remember a little while ago now, um, Narel, my wife and I, uh, were kindly uh, offered a Thermomix by my mother. And so we, uh, we had the demonstration at home and a couple of hours later, having eaten pizza and sorbet and custard and dips and risotto, we just found ourselves thinking... Not just, not just that we like a Thermomix or that this would be handy or we want a Thermomix. It was more like, how do we ever get by without a Thermomix? I mean, we, we need a Thermomix. And it's not just Thermomixes, right? It, it can be iWatches, iPhones, investment properties, cars, a spouse, a child. There are so many things, many of them good, that would either blind us or give us temporary amnesia and prevent us from seeing or recognising that our greatest need is not more gadgets. It's not better homes and gardens. It's not a holiday or a spouse or a job or a child. No, I don't don't mean to denigrate those things. It's just it's not our greatest need. According to the Bible, our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven, to have a restored relationship with the God who made us and who loves us. So if you've ever read the Bible and you just find it generally confusing, it's it's probably because you don't understand that the main question the Bible is seeking to answer is this, how can hopelessly sinful, rebellious people come to live again in the presence of a good and loving and holy God? What Paul's saying here is that if you take away the resurrection, that hope evaporates. It, It just disappears as quickly as the morning mist. The question is, why? Why, if Jesus wasn't raised bodily from the dead, would we still be in our sins? After all, doesn't Jesus cry out from the cross, it is finished? Elsewhere, the New Testament writers say say things like, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Does it really matter if Jesus rose from the dead if he paid for our sins on the cross? Why uh, Why aren't we forgiven if we take away the resurrection? Well, the answer, I think, is that the resurrection is proof to us that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted by God, that it actually worked. Yes, it's it's the cross where Jesus pays for our sins and and pays our debt and frees us from our sins, but it's the resurrection that shows us that the debt is paid and the punishment's over. So so just just as an empty prison cell indicates that a criminal's punishment has been paid for, that his sentence has been satisfied, that the punishment's over, so too the empty tomb of the one who substituted himself for us indicates that our punishment is paid for, 
that our sentence is satisfied. Let me try and illustrate it with, a, with an illustration I've, I've heard. It's not perfect, but I, I think it's helpful. Um, it goes something like this. Suppose, suppose my three kids, the well, three oldest kids, Noah, Annabelle and Ruby, suppose they're in my backyard and, and start playing with the lemons off the lemon tree. And I go out and say, hey, guys, I don't want you to play with the lemons off the lemon tree. And they say, yes, Daddy. They go on playing. A few moments later, as Noah's jumping on the trampoline, Annabelle and Ruby, my, my, my two uh, daughters, uh, they begin to take lemons off the lemon tree. And so Noah reminds them that, that Daddy's told them not to do that and encourages them to, to do the right thing. If you knew my kids, you would know that right now this is clearly a, a made-up illustration. Um, he encourages them to do the right thing, but, but they ignore him. And it's not long before they start throwing lemons around and eventually a lemon gets thrown through the garage window. I hear the sound of breaking glass. And so I quickly rush down the back steps and uh, when I, I survey the kind of situation, I realise what's happened. I can tell that everyone's okay. But, but when I realise what's happened, my, my facial expression turns from, from concern to anger. And immediately, Annabelle and Ruby can tell they're in big trouble. But then Noah, even though he done, he's done nothing wrong, he offers... He offers to take their punishment. And so I explain to, to Annabelle and Ruby that even though they're guilty and the Noah's innocent, he's kindly offered to, to take their punishment and earn their forgiveness by going to his room. As Noah sits in his room with the door shut, the girls sit in the, in the lounge room. They kind of play, but they're, they're really tentative. It's just an air of, of anxiety and concern. You see... They keep checking Noah's door. They're wondering if, if, if the trade will really work. Because as long as his, his door's closed, as long as he's still in his room, they still feel like their punishment's being worked out, that I might still be annoyed with them. But the moment I call for Noah, and he appears from his room, and we hug, all of that change, all of the anxiety, all the angst just leaves the room. They say, come on, Noah, let's go outside and play. You see, the empty room indicates that the punishment's paid in full. Justice is satisfied. The incident's over. They're forgiven and free. That's why Paul writes in places like Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, the cross and the resurrection are, are two sides of the one saving work. In dying on the cross, he bore the penalty for our sins. In rising from the dead, he confirms that his death was sufficient and that we now stand right before God, that victory's been won, that we're freed from our sins and forgiven by God. But if you take away the resurrection, it would mean that Christ's death accomplished nothing and we'd still be in our sins. Finally, Paul says that if Jesus hasn't been raised, then our loved ones, those who have trusted in Christ and who have died, he says that they're lost forever. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There are a few things I think more painful in this world than the death of a loved one. A few years ago, I experienced this in a way I hadn't before with, with the death of my father. He was diagnosed with, with bowel cancer and dead three months later. He was literally running on a beach three months before and died three months later. At funerals, we instinctively search for hope. We instinctively want to believe that death is not the end. 
And so we speak of the, the deceased person being at rest or going to a better place or is watching over us. Interestingly, according to a survey in 2014, a civil celebrant now performs 60% of funerals. And an increasingly common factor, or feature rather, is the use of secular songs of defiance, like Sinatra's, Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, as though on the way out we can give death the the one-fingered salute one more time. I've been to funerals like that. I just think it's a facade. There's still the same grief. There's still something deep inside us that screams... Something is wrong. Something's broken. And so we we search for meaning. We hope that that the person is in a better place, that that death is not the end. Well, here it's like Paul draws graveside. Like he goes to that part of the funeral where, where the coffin's being lowered into the ground. And he doesn't mean to be insensitive. But he also doesn't want to give us false hope. He's saying that if the tomb of Jesus wasn't empty, then the person in that coffin, like my dad, who who trusted in Jesus, followed him imperfectly, but but nonetheless followed him, the person in that coffin isn't in a better place. They're not watching down over us. They're not at peace. They haven't just died in their sins. They haven't just died, rather. They've they've died in their sins. And they face an eternity under God's judgment, separated from, from life and love and all good things. You see, their faith was for nothing. They built their whole life on a lie. And now they're lost forever. It's not hard to see, is it, why Paul finishes by saying, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I know this is kind of morbid for Easter Sunday. (laughs) I'm nodding over there. You might think, what, what is wrong with this guy? I mean, he had a really bad day and come here inventing. No, that's not, that's not what, what's going on here. I'm just pointing, that's what's at stake in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. That's the point Paul's making. He's saying if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we Christians should be pitied because our faith is futile. We've believed a lie. We're still under God's judgment. Our sins haven't been forgiven. And our loved ones who have died trusting in Christ are lost. You see, if Jesus didn't come out from the grave, then he's a dead saviour. And a dead saviour is no saviour. One of the things I remember from back in 2013 when Narelle and I were living and studying in the States, in Washington, D.C., is sitting in the office of the guy who I was was studying under on the evening of of Easter Sunday. So this very evening. The guy's name was, was Mark Dever. Mark was a very clever guy. He converted to Christianity at a fairly young age from a, a, a background in agnosticism, having become uh, persuaded, convinced of the historical reality of the resurrection. He went on to obtain a, a Doctor of Philosophy from Cambridge University in Ecclesiastical History. Anyway, as I was, I was sitting in his office Easter Sunday evening with a, with a group of guys, we were reviewing the services from earlier that day. Uh, Mark had been away uh, preaching at another church that morning. And as part of the review process, he recalled a story that he told in his sermon earlier that day. He said, one of the early Greek philosophers gives an interesting parable of a a fox traveling along a forest path, winding in and out between the trees. Finally, the fox comes to a dark cave where he says, many footprints are visible going in. 
from the darkness of the cave comes a voice saying, come in here. But the fox says, no. I see many footprints going in, but none coming out. I don't want to go in. Friends, he said, this is a picture of death. Marching generations respond to the call to go in, but no one ever comes out. All along, the great leaders, kings and dictators and religious leaders and wise men and prophets and generals all meekly enter. Buddha enters. Muhammad and Confucius go in. But no one ever comes out. But Jesus came out. And precisely because he came out, everything Paul says in this passage, all of the negative implications that he heaps up, one on top of the other, can be flipped. They can be turned into positive statements. Christ is risen. Therefore, spending your life following him, loving him, serving him, is the most meaningful, purposeful thing you can do. Christ is risen. Christian faith isn't built on a blind leap into the abyss, but but rests on solid ground, on the the original testimony, the eyewitnesses, who weren't liars but were reliable. They they spoke the truth. Christ has risen. If you've trusted in Christ, then you're forgiven of your sins. You stand right before God. Christ has risen. Far from being pitied, we're among the most privileged people alive. Christ has risen. He is the first fruits, God's pledge and promise that we too will be raised. You see, that's why Christians traditionally have greeted one another on this day with the words, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we give you great thanks that Christ is risen. We thank you for sending your only son into the world to die on the cross in our place. We thank you that through his resurrection from the dead, we've been given new birth into a living hope. Please help us, Father, to to follow him. Please strengthen us in our resolve to follow and serve him. him. Help us to be like the Apostle Paul, to give our whole lives in service to him. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Through Christ our Lord.